Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Urgent Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Alberta. This unplanned broadcast is live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. This conversation for the public is also being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Since we began these briefings, we have promised Albertans a regular panel of doctors and experts who endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta. And that is why we are here today. Thank you so much for joining us today, everyone, for this urgent broadcast. With me today, I have Dr. Vipon, Dr. Gasparovich, Dr. Bisbee, and Dr. Bakshi, members of the Protect Our Province Alberta team. To start us off, I would like to welcome Dr. Vipon on screen for a numbers update. Hey, everybody. Um, so, uh, kind of... Uh... In a strange twist of fate, the numbers were released two minutes ago. Usually they're released at 3.30, but uh, more recently on, on the days that we're broadcasting, they tend to be released a little later. I'm sure it's coincidental. Um, so I don't have graphs, um, but I do have a bunch of numbers that I cobbled together from um, Courtney Tirio's, um tweet, which uh, had all the numbers from today. I can't guarantee these are... Um, uh, the exact same that I'll be releasing later today because I go off the data set and some of the numbers are adjusted. So cases per day yesterday were 4,704. That's a 36.2% increase over last Monday's 2,964. Sorry, that's not correct. That's a 59% increase. I'm getting my numbers. This is this is what you're up against, guys, is uh, uh, an emergency doctor doing this on the, on the back of a napkin instead of a uh, uh, professional um, uh, data analyst with the government, but hey, you know you get what you, you get what you pay for, right? I'm free. So 2,964 cases last week. That's a 59% increase to uh, 44,704 percent um, uh, positivity was 38.5%. That's compared to last Monday's 36.21%. Um, what's really concerning, I think, today, from what I can tell, is uh, hospitalizations. So inpatients are up 65. That's a 10.3% increase to 628. And I, I can't overemphasize um, how scary that is to have a 10% increase in one day. And, and maybe some of our uh, other physicians can speak to how, how a system can deal with that kind of exponential growth. Um, similar numbers for uh, ICU up a total of 8 to 80. That's an 11.1% increase and eight deaths. And unfortunately, I don't have the demographics of those eight deaths. And I am not able to report at this point on pediatric admissions. But I think, Michelle, I should have that information um, by the end of the session today um, as, as the other people I work with the data uh, roll that information out. So uh, maybe I can do a quick update at the very end. Um, I have one slide to show uh, th thanks to uh, a, a Twitter user who pointed this out that this information now exists on the stats website. Um, I just want to point out that there's 5,427 healthcare workers um, with active COVID at this moment. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the denominator of that. I think it's around 110,000, um, which means approximately 5% of the workforce 
is uh, is out of commission at the moment. Um, I also uh, was stunned to see that there are now 10 deaths of healthcare workers. I don't know when the last time we, we talked about the death of a healthcare worker. I seem to remember the last time I, I knew the numbers was around four. Um, and so I'm, I'm shocked uh, at this. And I also want to uh, acknowledge the death of a teenager yesterday. Um, sorry, over, uh, announced on yesterday. I don't, I'm not exactly sure of her date of death. Um, but, uh, and I'm using the, the pronoun uh, she because I, I, I think um, from the information that I'm hearing that that's, that's the gender that she had. Um, and I wish I knew more about her. I wish we could um, celebrate her life and honor her death. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's all we have now. So um, if we can turn it back to you, Michelle. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. Um, looking at those healthcare worker numbers is truly alarming to me. A group of humans who have given so much to Albertans since early 2020, um, and they're experiencing this robust impact of this virus on a daily basis that I can't even begin to imagine from the moral injury to the ongoing traumatic toll on their mental health. The physical effects of COVID-19 are again plaguing our healthcare workers in massive numbers. Over the last couple of weeks, the viral impacts of Omicron have joined many Albertans in their homes, um, including in the home of one of our regular contributors, um, Dr. Bakshi. Dr. Bakshi, thank you so much for joining us today while you are still recovering from COVID-19. As we, as we begin looking a bit at your experience and with the constant narrative around the mild nature of Omicron and vaccinated populations, would you mind if I asked you your vaccine status? Yeah, um, so I'm triple vaxxed. All three doses that I received were Pfizer and my uh, booster shot was in November. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Could you tell us a bit about what the last couple of weeks have been like in your home? Um, yeah, so, you know, obviously, um, I think everybody, and not just healthcare workers, has been working very hard for the last two years to try to avoid getting infected, try to avoid, <coughs> excuse me, trying to avoid passing it on. And certainly as somebody who's done a lot of frontline COVID work, um, this has been something that I've been worried about for two years. And felt pretty um, confident in, in the things and the, the things that I was doing over the last two years to protect my family, to protect this virus from coming in. And uh, last Monday, my daughter, um, I, I was out at work and I came home midday and my daughter just didn't look great. And so I took her temperature and she had a fever. Um, and we had some rapid tests at home. So we immediately rapid tested her and she was positive. Um, and mind you, we we didn't do anything over the holidays. In fact, I was working over Christmas and for the New Year's week, we didn't do anything. We didn't go anywhere. Um, and uh, we have, she has a twin sister. So we tested her. Her first rapid was negative. My first rapid was negative. My husband's first rapid was negative. But, you know, and I think a lot of families and young family can probably relate to this. My family, we're very, very snuggly. We're very, very close. And it was you know, quite impossible to isolate away from my children. They're eight years old. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, at this point, we assumed that we were all exposed. We tried to do our best to stay as, as safe as at a part as we want. But as an eight-year-old who is sick wants their mom. And so um, we all decided to isolate, even though it was a close contact. Uh, and without symptoms at that point, I could have gone back to work. I could have gone to my clinic and continued to see patients. I decided not to. I decided to shift to virtual clinic um, 
to, for two reasons. One is to make sure that I wasn't um, transmitting anything to patients that I was seeing, but also to be there for my child. Um, and so by Wednesday, uh, my daughter had been quite ill by that point. She uh, suffered about three days of fever straight um, and her twin sister developed symptoms on Wednesday and that's when I developed symptoms as well. Um, so I'm currently on day uh, six or seven at this point. Um, and it's certainly not mild for us. I know that everybody has different experiences, um, but my both my daughters had fever, cough. Uh, they were very lethargic. They just started eating on Monday, so they've gone about a week without really eating anything. Um, I had probably every symptom in the book. I had fever, um, headache, sore throat, uh, persistent cough. Uh, I lost my taste. I lost my smell. I developed hives all over my body. Um, I'm having muscle spasms in my legs that uh, have gone uh, gone up in frequency in the last couple of days um, and a profound fatigue. And I think lots of people who have gone through COVID, uh, whichever variant it was, can agree that the fatigue is quite debilitating. And it's one of these things where you feel okay one minute and then about an hour later, you are just, <clears throat> you were just on the couch. You can't really do very much. Um, so it's been a challenge for us. And I think as a healthcare worker, um, there's, there's an incredible amount of guilt, even though I know that Omicron is quite prevalent in the community <clears throat> and this could have come from anywhere. There's a lot of guilt that you feel, uh, particularly when I've, I've chosen my career as a physician, I've chosen to be frontline and I have been frontline in this pandemic for two years. And so there's a lot of guilt that comes with that. Could you expand on that a little bit? Are you feeling guilt around possibly having brought it home to your tiny humans or around having to be away from the work that you have dedicated your life to? Both. And I think that is a struggle that probably lots of um, physician parents and healthcare par worker parents have felt, um, or essential worker parents, I should say, for this entire pandemic is that we all have a, we all feel this moral obligation and duty to those that we serve. And then we have that same duty and obligation to our families and they never align. Um, so, you know, right now I'm at day six or seven. So by the, the algorithm for return to work, if my symptoms are starting to improve and I've been fever free for 24 hours, I could return to work. And there's a big part of me that knows that my colleagues in the hospital are suffering. We are dealing with gargantuan numbers of patients, not just COVID patients, but patients in general. And we are seeing so many of my colleagues test positive and having to go on isolation. And so our backup rosters are very, very thinned out at this point. And so that there's a big part of me that says, take some Advil, let's go to work, let's figure this out. And then there's another part of me that says, no, my kids still need me. And then there's that third part of me that's not very loud, but thankful to my colleagues here in POP that tells me you need to rest and you need to, you need to sit down and you're not going to be of much use to those same patients or that family members if you're not taking care of yourself. And that part, that voice, I don't think is very loud for many of us. First of all, thank you so much for sharing your experience over the last couple of weeks. And hopefully we'll have the opportunity to check in again as you continue to work your way through the recovery process. I think it's really important for folks at home to see all of the ways that this is impacting individuals and families, as well as work-life balance, as well as those obligations to those outside of our internal circles that we want to be able so desperately to uphold. Um, 
before we move on to bringing the rest of our panel in, is there any other thoughts or retrospectives on the last couple of weeks or what you're facing in the week going forward? So you could go back to work today if your symptoms feel like they're improving. Um, you sound sick to me. Yeah. I would not want to see you injured by overworking yourself, but I hear those other concerns. So I guess, yeah, what that looks like for you going yeah. forward. I think I, I put out a tweet the other day saying that my stance on, on COVID, COVID transmission, healthcare capacity, and, 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 and the restrictions or the policy around how we govern COVID has not changed, but I'm, I'm more scared now than I have been in two years. And it's not necessarily because this has happened to me and sure that that is something I have, will have to emotionally process later, later down the line. But what I'm more fearful of is that there are so many healthcare workers like me who are getting sick, who thankfully, because we're vaccinated, we're not getting hospitalized, but yet we are still getting sick enough that we should not be put back into a highly stimulating and high expectations work environment. And even if I was ready to go back to work at five, six or seven days, those five, six, seven days are days that somebody else had to cover for me. And the pool that we have, whether it's physicians or nurses, or allied health to be able to cover off these gaps is very, very slim to begin with. And we haven't even started to talk in this conversation about the load of patients that we're seeing in hospital. So we're not even talking about a baseline workforce that we need right now. We actually need 33 to 50% more workforce than we have now to deal with the demands. And we're actually 33 to 50% less than where we need to be. So I think that is my biggest fear going forward. It's how are we going to mandate that? And there's gonna be more and more physicians and healthcare workers like myself who are going to say, well, I think I feel okay enough to go back. So let's go back. I don't know if you know the answer to this. And if anyone else on the panel is aware, please just raise your hand there in the background and I'll bring you on up. Um, I've seen a differing accounts slash studies on how long you are in that infectious window from when you test positive. Um, does anyone have any current data on that that they're aware of? Um, just because given that you're still symptomatic as much as day five is a potential return to work day, is it safe to go back out in public? Yeah, I don't know that I have the exact answer. I know that there's some there's some studying or there's some conversation around Omicron having a shorter window and I'm I don't know where the five and 10 day rule actually came from. I suspect it has more to do with workforce planning than infectivity, but we would hope that there was some science and evidence around that, but I, I don't know the specifics of that. As we move into our roundtable conversation, I'm going to bring up Dr. Vipond, who does have some thoughts on that question. Yeah, I can uh, speak a little bit to that. There was some new data out of um, Japan, just I think a couple of days ago that talked about um, 30% uh, ongoing infectivity at six days. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just going by my memory. So I could be getting some of this wrong. So forgive me if that's the case. Um, and uh, my understanding is the original pronouncement by the CDC was based on two things. Uh, a request from, uh, I believe, a number of airlines that, uh, again, as uh, Dr. Bakshi said, uh, has to do with workforce requirements. Um, and then... Um, the uh, some data from pre-Omicron times. And so Omicron is not like the other variants. There's a lot different with it. And I think um, 
we're we're learning now that uh, that the infectivity is a little bit longer. So it's a bit of a gamble um, because, as Dr. Bakshi says, if she uh, needs to go back to to work on uh, earlier than, um, like, if she were to go back today, there's a good chance she would still be infective. And so, great, you have one person back, but what if Dr. Bakshi infects three other people or five other people? So you're plus one minus five. And I'm not really good at math, but arithmetic uh, arithmetic says that that's I think overall a negative. So. I'm going to bring our other two panelists into this urgent briefing conversation, um, Dr. Bisbee and Dr. Gasparovich. And to start us off, I am going to welcome Shannon from CTV Calgary into the conversation. Shannon, I'm adding you to our stream to ask some questions of our panel. Thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, I guess I just want to go back, um, Dr. Bakshi, why was it important for you to come out today and uh, share your story of, of dealing with COVID right now? Uh, thanks, Shannon. I think it was important because I, I know so many of my own colleagues and healthcare workers that are going through this right now. And I think that really we're not talking about the dire need for staffing that we have in the hospital system. And we talk about hospital collapse. We've been talking about hospital collapse for the last so many waves. And yes, hospitalizations are going up and today's numbers frankly scared me, the big jump that we had. But what's also happening is that while hospitalizations are going up, our number of available staff is going down quickly. And, and by quickly, I mean every other day I'm getting, hey, Dr. Bakshi, I'm positive, I'm positive, I'm positive. And these are people that are either, you know, learners, residents, nurses, uh, my colleagues. And those are people that, that we need to be able to replace so that patient care can continue. And there is, there is this duty of, I need to go back to work whenever uh, my, my colleagues need me. And I think we need to talk about that. And the second piece is that I really wanted to highlight that for me and for my family, Omicron was not mild. And I think the definition of mild has been thrown around quite a bit. And mild in my definition is I didn't need to go to the hospital and be intubated. But it was not mild in that I've basically been on the couch for seven to eight days, have not been able to eat or drink, have not been able to do my basic daily activities. That's not mild in my case. Yeah. And a triple vaccinated um, otherwise healthy physician. Right. And I, I think that that is something that has been going on. A lot of the public think, well, maybe I should try and get Omicron. It sounds like it's mild and then we can just be done with that. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something people should be doing right now? And that goes out to all of you. Yeah. Oja, can you take that one? Yes. Yeah, so I, I'm really scared about this mild narrative because it did a lot of bad things because it it generates inaction and idea of getting infected with COVID is bad. Uh, it just hurt, hurts you. And Omicron is like milder than Delta but Delta was more aggressive than Alpha and Alpha was more aggressive than original variant. And as an effect of this, Omicron is more virulent, worse, more harsh than original variant. So if, if you didn't want to get original variant, you also even more shouldn't like to have the Omicron. And yeah, if many people are infected, then many people will have it not mild. It's, it, it's just not mild. That's that, that that is the very very wrong concept. Thank you for for clarifying that. 
Um, I do have a, a question about um, new metrics that Ontario is going to be coming out with tomorrow. I don't know if any of you can can talk to it or not, but uh, basically they are saying that they're differentiating between people that were hospitalized because of COVID and people that were in hospital being treated for other other symptoms of other things and then found out that they tested positive for COVID and now being um, treated for that as well. I don't know if we have the similar metrics in Alberta where we differentiate that or not. Um, and if we do, if you know those numbers and your thoughts on that. So I can I can take that. I mean, one of the things I think is important, every jurisdiction is different in terms of provinces, but in Alberta, one of the reasons from the very beginning that we had COVID wards was from uh, infection prevention control to be able to ensure that we weren't uh, purposefully spreading COVID when we, when we uh, shouldn't be to vulnerable patients, trying to keep patients who had COVID isolated. And isolation in itself is not a new phenomenon for any hospital. So if you have a certain type of infectious disease, you are isolated from other patients because of that. I think it's important to note that there's lots of people who are admitted for other things, heart attacks, heart failure, pulmonary embolus, who may have an incidental finding of COVID. Treatment for COVID is based on the clinical parameters of COVID. So if a patient has incidental COVID, but they're no, not showing any signs or symptoms of COVID, there's nothing that we would do anyways clinically except for monitor. We'll monitor their oxygenation saturations, monitor any other clinical signs. So I don't, I'm not, I haven't looked at what Ontario is going to be doing differently, but I think that if you have COVID, just like if you have diarrhea plus another illness, we're still going to treat the COVID. We will also treat the other illness. Um, I think it's an important distinction to make. Where these patients are housed in the hospital is up to the individual hospital infection prevention control. And I think the still the premise right now for Alberta is to as much as we can cohort these patients away from general population, we can. doesn't mean that we're not going to treat their other illnesses, but it means that we're going to try to keep COVID with COVID as much as we can. I just, I have one more question. Um, just curious your thoughts. Quebec, obviously, um, very controversial, came out today and says that they are looking at taxing the unvaccinated. Do you think this is something that Alberta should be adopting as well? <laughs> Anybody want to share some initial thoughts on that? I'm quite interested to see how they are planning on implementing that in terms of is it if you are not vaccinated and require care for COVID, there's going to be more of a cost associated to it? Or is it going to be plain and simple? Uh, if you don't get your shot, you now have to pay us X number of dollars a month. Um, Michelle, I can maybe take, I can, and I'll only speak, I won't speak for Pop, I'll speak for myself as a practitioner that I think, I, 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 I don't know why Quebec is doing this. I, I suspect because of the, this, the uh, volume of patients that they're seeing in hospital. But I think as an individual practitioner, individual healthcare worker, we're not going to be denying care. We're not going to be um, looking at uh, vaccination status and determining how we treat a patient. So I think it'll be interesting to see exactly how Michelle and how they're going to enforce this, how they're going to uh, determine who exactly is fined or taxed or whatever language they're using. But I think when it comes to healthcare workers, I'm, I'm very hopeful that they're not putting this on individual providers to make that call. Dr. Bipon, did you have something you wanted to add? I think Kate first. Um, Kate wanted to broaden out on the five five-day questions. She may have some other things to say and then I can speak. Oh yeah, um, 
uh, I'll quickly just, I wanted to add to what uh, Dr. Bakshi just said about this Quebec issue as well. Um, I mean, uh, I personally, I work with vulnerable populations, people living in poverty who've been marginalized by our systems through racialized violence or systemic um, oppression. And I know that within the community of people who have chosen or are not vaccinated, there is a, it's not this, it's not all one group. Uh, there's people who aren't vaccinated for access issues. There are people who aren't vaccinated because, you know, they grow up in the residential school system and don't trust doctors. And I um, understand, I, I can appreciate that. So I worry with this kind of tax, as Nija said, not just is it healthcare workers who are going to have to implement this, but how are we going to make sure that um, the tax isn't harming more than it's helping, I suppose. Um, would be my thought. Uh, it makes me nervous. I don't know a lot about it, but from a uh, equity issue uh, perspective, it does make me issue or uh, nervous. Um, as to sorry, the five day uh, changes that we were talking to previously, um, and what evidence is there? I've been asking. I've been asking since the last time I was on <laughs> POP. I attended a primary care session and asked. Uh, and no one has been able to provide any evidence to justify this five days. Um, there's a lot of hypotheses. Um, there was one study, I think, that showed for Delta, um, the average clearing time was 5.5 days. Uh, and there was a, you know, pulled out of the air, hopeful, well, Omicron comes on more quickly, so it should clear more quickly. But I've seen no actual evidence of that. Um, so I am very uncomfortable with this five-day rule. Um, I don't think it's based in evidence at this point. I think it's based in uh, um, worker need. Um, and I think that as uh, we've previously discussed, it's a huge violation of worker safety rights. Um, I can't imagine what it's like being a teacher showing up at school this week, knowing that you're not being kept as safe as you could be. Uh, the same for frontline healthcare workers who are showing up still sick, potentially worried that they're infecting their patients, worried that their coworkers are infecting them. Um, yeah. Dr. Vipond. Yeah, I just wanted to speak briefly to some of the unknowns with Omicron because um, some some people have said it's like a like a whole new virus. It's like a. a, a Basically, the, the other variants were kind of twists on the same theme, and Omicron's a little bit like a different theme. Um, so one of the things we've talked about is, is milder being less COVID pneumonia, that it seems to replicate more in the upper airways rather than in the alveoli. So it causes less, um, essentially, suffocation, um, low oxygen levels requiring intubation and requiring the ICU. So that seems, on the surface, um, quite good. Because um, we don't like intensive care um, patients, they're they're we like them. <laughs> we just don't don't like a lot of them, right? Like we don't want it, people going down that path. Um, we'll care for them if they exist. But um, but what that's mean is there's lots of other uh, elements to to this illness. Elements like uh, people with de um, diabetes going into something called DKA or renal failure, um, other causes. So even if you're you know, incidentally um, found to have COVID, often that will prolong your hospital stay. Um, or, uh, you know, someone who otherwise was coping quite well in, in the 
in in public in 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 life um, having to be admitted for you know an exacerbation of an existing disease like their heart failure getting worse. But there are some unknowns we still don't know. Um, the biggest one that I'm worried about is that we know that with the previous variants that this isn't restricted to the pulmonary system. Um, you know, you talked to, had Dr. Bash talk about hives and, and leg cramps. And, you know, so we know that things are going on um, outside of just the lungs. Um, and some of those people have gone on in previous variants to, to have long COVID. Long COVID is a, a long-term, um, at least two-month uh, disability, some people longer, some people seem to be going on for years with this. And uh, the, the best stat, stats that I've seen is 2 to 10% of, of pediatric cases and up to 30% of, of adults. And that's irrespective of the original severity. So that doesn't matter whether you're hospitalized or just um, the sniffles. Um, all of those people can go on to have some of these uh, symptoms. And, and essentially, we have no idea what the impacts are of Omicron. I mean, by definition, if it's a long-term illness, how do we know? I think we're about eight weeks, seven weeks into this um, Omicron uh, knowledge. Um, with South Africa, I think it was the second week of or third week of dis, uh, November where we initially saw it. So it's at, by definition too early to know if there's long-term impacts from this. And so um, that's really worrisome. And the final thing I'll just say is that, um, and people aren't really aware of this, but the South Africa mortality curve hasn't peaked yet. Um, neither has the Denmark mortality curve or the UK mortality curve. Those are all um, countries that are ahead of us. And, and so there's a chance that... Um, that, you know, with previous waves, there was this like pretty straight up and down curve with mortality. There's a chance that there'll be a long tail uh, to this mortality curve, which means that although, you know, at this point, it looks like, wow, we're doing great. Not as many people are dying. Um, that 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 may be um, too soon to call. So I, I like to know. I'd like to be talking more about um, about that, about the unknowns. Does that answer all of your questions for today, Shannon? Thank you so very much for joining us. Um, feel free to come back anytime. <laughs> um, as we say goodbye to Shannon, we'll turn over to some questions from folks at home. Um, while I was soliciting some questions today, I heard from a lot of Albertans on the lack of transparency from our medical leadership and concerns from Albertans about safety, even in terms of things like seeking hospital care with a lack of transparency and understanding around what's really going on, um, sort of reminiscent of our conversation that we had moments ago with Dr. Bakshi in terms of she could go back to work today Um but we still don't really have a clear understanding of transmission window. Um, so what, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Maybe, maybe I'll start with you, Dr. Bisbee. Thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, as a community practitioner, um, I think that's one of my biggest frustrations right now is the lack of um, data that we're having. Um, and that it's a problem for me for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, throughout this pandemic, our government and Dr. Hinshaw have been very vocal about taking personal responsibility and um, kind of assessing personal risk. I recall in the summer about back to school, the emphasis was on parents, you know, you need to assess your child's risk and do what you feel is safe. Um, and they, since mid-December, 
with the collapse of our testing system, they've basically just removed all the data. Um, the rapid tests at home are helpful uh, in determining if I have COVID, but I don't know about all the children at school for my children. Um, they don't have to report, schools don't have to report anymore. Great, so how is a parent to figure out if their child's class has an outbreak? Um, I've learned today that the oil and gas camps are decreasing the reporting and testing. So awesome, we have workplaces which we don't know are safe. Um, and you do still have a large part of the population that for whatever reason is unvaccinated, be them children or adults. So the government seems to be taking away our data to make the decisions that they're put on us. And if you're gonna have a policy or many policies based on personal responsibility and risk self-risk assessment, then you need to give us the data. Um, the other way this is frustrating me right now is that in the second, most of COVID, most of these waves, except maybe for the first couple of months when there was a lot of unknowns, I as a family doctor have felt very safe saying to my patients, you need to go to hospital, you need to go for that diagnostic test, you need to go to urgent care. Yes, COVID is a thing, but the hospitals are doing a great job of keeping you safe from getting infected while you're there. I cannot say that with confidence anymore because I'm not getting the data and I know healthcare workers are going back sick. Does that mean infectious? We don't know. So what do I tell my patients now? I no longer can confidently say, yes, go seek the care you need. Now it's what's gonna be the worst harm, letting a COVID infection or not seeking timely care. And I don't have the answer to that the people who could give us that information and help us make those decisions are just, they're just getting rid of testing. They're getting rid of data uh, by the date, by the press conference. Um, so soon, other than ICU beds and deaths, like those are gonna be our metrics. Like how many people died? Do I send my kid to school? Um, and I, it's absurd, it's absurd. It's not safe. And that's honestly gonna be harming the people who have the least flexibility in their lives. Um, single parents who have to send their kids to school, workers who have to show up for work, don't have union protection. Um, I, once again, they will be paying the price for, for our policies. Anybody have any other thoughts on that question that they would like to add? Then I will move on to a next question. This one's a little bit specific, and I don't know if I have seen any research on this, um, but a question that a lot of folks have been asking is, given the current high community transmission rates of COVID, can anyone on the panel speak to the potential for transmission via the eyes? Um, during they, this person has stated during very brief encounters um, or in outdoor settings, but that fully masked situation, um, the goggles and sh face shield type stuff. Yeah, I don't. I um, I can speak a little bit to this. I can tell you, there's really not enough data on this. Um, so we, I can't tell you exactly what the right answer is, but I can tell you what I do. Um, when I'm at work, I wear goggles the entire time. Um, 
from the moment I enter the emergency room to the moment I leave. I do it because I'm in a very high risk environment. I'm actively seeing people with COVID all the time. And I think that uh, it's important um, that, I, that I protect the eyes. It's another mucosal membrane where theoretically things can, can, get, uh, can get into the eyes um, and into the rest of the body. Um, that being said, I don't when I'm out in public. Um, I'm never you know, long-term in a space next to anybody. Um, I think the risk is not not as high. You, you wouldn't be faulted if you were using it. Um, I do use the kind of goggles that wrap around the eyes and kind of like there's there's no room for anything to get in. Um, so I'm not entirely sure a face shield. In fact, there is some evidence that, that face shields um, instead of masks are, are really useless. Um, I don't know about face shields along with a respirator mask, uh, how important that is. Um, so... I don't. I think I don't think that's a great answer, but I can at least tell you what I'm doing. Uh, we had some questions from folks at home wondering about people's thoughts on expediting booster shots for the 10 to 19 year old demographic, like they're doing in some other jurisdictions, um, and whether or not there was any sign um, from NACI or powers that be that that might happen in the near future. Just recently approved in the United States, the 12 to 18 um, range. Um, I don't know if it's gone through all the hoops, but at least one of the hoops that needed to be passed um, has been passed in the United States. Um, and you said um, 10 to, to 18. Just remember that the 5 to 11 group is still getting their first and second shot. So um, they've got to go through all of that uh, first. So I think the other questions are, um, is what the interval between shots for the 5 to, to 11 group. Um, that's a huge debate. NACI has recommended eight weeks. The actual original study by Pfizer was a three-week interval. I think it's very um, reasonable to do a three-week interval. Um, the With Omicron being around and it being a clear and present danger, um, my personal opinion, um, based on what I've read, is that uh, you you wouldn't be wrong to, to, to doing it early. Um, and then we really need to talk about the zero to four range who haven't been had any shots at all. And the fact that we're letting this run rampant through our society and essentially saying, hey, well, hopefully they'll be okay. Um, and maybe that's a good segue for um, the PEDS ICU, or sorry, the PEDS admit numbers for today, 13 new PEDS admits in the zero to, um, to 19 age group. That's 11.4% of all hospital admissions. Um, three of those are in the ICU. So. Kate or Goja, do you have anything to add to that? So yes, that basically those kids from zero to four are not protected at all. And our policy is now basically to let it rip and personal responsibility and being vaccinated. And that's it. Like um, not everybody can get vaccinated. Like those kids zero to four cannot get vaccinated. People, some people are allergic and cannot get vaccinated. Some people cannot, like, even if they are vaccinated, they, they are immunocompromised, so vaccines don't work that, that well on them. So we basically, by letting it run through society, by design, because it's not inevitable to, to run it through society, make that, okay, like, if your personal shield doesn't work, too bad for you, you might die. And and if it did, does, doesn't hit you for first time, you're lucky. Maybe next time you get hit by, by COVID, it will be worse for you. 
how many times we can get infected. Some people were, I, I heard about people getting infected three or four times. Um, so the message that is out there, and, and actually there are three messages that are three nar narratives that are very harmful and they, um, they um, like make it possible to do nothing basically. So one is that Omicron uh, is mild, which is not true. Uh, and the second one is that, okay, Omicron is so fast that we will all get infected and inevitably. But it's also not true. Like in South Africa, cases started going down at something that, that is equivalent of our 1700 daily cases. So yes, they have different demographics, but they also have been fighting what is happening. They had public health measures and they, their, their cases started to go down. So our cases also could start go down if we would, if our government would do something to stop the transmission or slow down the transmission. And the third is, the third narrative is that oh, after Omicron, when everybody will get infected, we will get to endemicity and it will just slowly go through the society. We don't have any theoretical evidence for this. There's no model showing that. And the second is that they, we don't have any example from any other jurisdictions that something like this happened. So it's based on, it, it, it's, it's an unsubstantiated claim, yet our policy is based on it. So our policy of not fighting, non-stop, not stopping this virus. Um, and we know that the immunity wanes. So if I will get infected with Omicron, that just means that I got infected with Omicron. There's no benefit for me. For maybe a few months, I will be a little bit, I will have some immunity from infection, but it will wane over time. If the new variant come, will come in future, and probably it will, I can get infected again. So getting infected with Omicron doesn't solve anything. Um, so yeah, that's so we have to resist getting infected as much as we can. And we have also to resist and really be careful about false narratives because they are as viral as the virus and they usually go in front of the virus and kind of numb the society to accept infection as a consequence. Yeah, thank you. And if I can, I can add to that. I mean, I think back to the first wave when we all worked so hard to flatten the curve. Um, and we have, <coughs> apologies, we have kids who have their first dose um, maybe um, if you look at the vaccination rates of our kids compared to the rest of Canada, we're very low. We've just heard uh, at the start of this from Dr. Bakshi that our hospitals are struggling, whether it's COVID patients plus other patients. Um, and we've just opened all the schools up with minimal, minimal interventions to keep our kids safe, our education workers safe, or control community transmission. So we've we've taken away everything we're letting it rip on a population of kids who are less than half protected our hospitals are stuffed to the gills this is absurd why are we if everyone's going to get covid at some point great but why are we not trying to stretch it out even why are we not trying to flatten the curve like we did so much before to try and help keep our healthcare system open and functioning and uh, i guess the other part of this let it rip strategy which is very reminiscent of the uh, Great Barrington Declaration, is that that at least pretended to care about our vulnerable people. 
that GBD at least said, well, let's let it rip on the main population. And for those high risk people of harm, we'll do something to protect them. And we're not even pretending to do that here. I mean, schools are unsafe and not functioning. Hospitals are getting full and I can go to a hockey game. And that makes zero sense to me. It would be one thing if we were actually trying to somehow mitigate this in ways that balanced healthcare system, education needs, economic needs, um, but we're not even pretending to do that. Um, and it's just, it's shocking. It's shocking to me. Well said, um, Dr. Bisbee, very well said. Um, and I just want to, I think, just continue on this idea that this false narrative of we're all going to get it. Um, you know, as I've pointed out, we don't know about Omicron and its long-term effects. I really fear for our society if we take that attitude and, and we're wrong um, that Omicron's long-term effects are mild uh, or non-existent. Um, and I, I would just reiterate that there are things we can do to prevent this. Like, it, it's not like... It, <laughs> there's this joke that, like, we've tried nothing and it hasn't worked. Um, so New Zealand's curve has dropped over the last few weeks. China is successfully managing its, its COVID outbreak. Um, this virus responds to physics. It still has to get into your body. And now that we are acknowledging that it's an airborne transmitted virus, we can use airborne mitigation techniques to prevent it from entering our, our bodies and prevent it from, from infecting us. I see COVID positive patients every day at work. Um, and, and I have never been infected with COVID because I know how to protect myself and, and we need to be teaching the population that it's possible and necessary. And that, you know, the, the, we may be tired of the virus, but the virus is not tired of us. And you do not want to get this. This is not a, a let's go hot box, uh, chicken, chicken pox party, um, Omicron so that we get this super immunity. We don't, as Dr. Uh, Gasparovitz has pointed out, we don't know if we're going to get super immunity from this, but likely not based on uh, a previous experience with COVID. And it's, it's potentially very, very dangerous. Let's keep ourselves safe. Let's keep our loved ones safe. And at the same time, let's acknowledge that you still may get COVID despite everything that you do. And that's not your fault um, because this is an incredibly um, uh, transmissible virus and uh, all we can do is our our best and and um and but we got to try to close today off um i would like to go to a good news story i don't know about the rest of albertans but i need a good news story um chad that also means i need your help um, because I hope that you have some pictures for me that you can pop up, maybe. Oh, oh, yay. Okay. Um, so, um, a good news story that is possible thanks to the contributions of so many Albertans. Um, Pop AB in partnership and spearheaded by the brilliant team at Alberta Activists Collective put out a call for support to purchase KN95 masks for Albertans facing considerable access barriers. And I am thrilled to say that the $25,000 fundraising goal was met and surpassed and last night, distribution began. Um, with supply chain and transport concerns impacting shipping, Alberta Activist Collective went straight to the manufacturing plant in Burnaby, 
BC and drove the shipment to Alberta. Um, they paused briefly in Calgary last night to begin distributing before heading up to Edmonton um, with some stock ready to get quality masks right into the hands of those who need them most. I needed this story so much. Um, and those were some visuals of their travels because I love visuals. Um, thank you, Alberta, so very much. And again, huge thank you to the team at Alberta Activist Collective for spearheading that initiative and giving folks who had the ability to an opportunity to contribute to something that will help um, relieving some of the powerlessness that I think all of us feel. And even more importantly, creating a little bit more equitability and access. I know we have such a long way to go before we can ever say that we are accessible and equitable, but small steps I like to think will eventually lead to big changes. So thank you again so very much. We will be back tomorrow for our regular stream looking at home isolation and limiting the spread of COVID when part of your cohabitation crew is ill. So join us at 4 p.m. live on all the usual spaces. And remember, subscribe, share, and expand the chorus because together we can help keep each other informed. Stay safe, Alberta. Remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask with the securest fit you have access to. And vaccines are still saving lives. Mm -hmm.